This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Hello and welcome to A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. He's Scott, I'm Mia, and today we're looking at Chapter 17, Brand 3 of A Game of Thrones. So before we jump into the episode today, uh, we just wanted to quickly explain where we've been, because we know we've been gone for quite a while. Um, this year's been busy. I'm now full-time in a research position which is amazing. I really love it, but it does take up a lot of time and it took a while to kind of get into it and kind of understand what my days would be like and what I could feasibly do on top of that. So uh, for me, part of the delay has been um, just making sure that I could actually maintain the podcast and my job at the same time. Uh, Scott, what have you been up to? Oh, I've been teaching, teaching and more teaching. Um, so I, I co-coordinated a unit um, for the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies during the summer school, uh, Introduction to Cultural Studies. Uh, that was February uh, and I did not anticipate getting more teaching work this year. Uh, and then a week before the semester began, uh, my dear supervisor of over a decade was like, hey, you want a job for, <laughs> for the next 12 weeks? I'm like, all right, yeah. So I've been teaching uh, another unit, key thinkers in cultural studies at, within the same department at the same uni. Uh, but that's been my life so far. So a lot of teaching. I teach on weekends as well, uh, different level, teaching year threes and year fours. So that's interesting as well. Very different challenge that. But as you can probably gather, I don't have a lot of time <laughs> at the moment. Uh, and on top of that, um, delivering research papers and getting journal articles revised and resubmitted and revised and resubmitted. I've done that twice during this semester, which takes a lot of time. So ultimately, when we initially decided we wanted to come back around Marches, I think we decided, um, I think you thought you'd have a handle on your job then, Mia. That's when all the shit hit the fan on my side. <laughs> so the constant delays have actually really been my fault. So I do apologize for that, but it was unavoidable. And I'm glad we're here today to record. Finally, mm. finally. Yeah, and on the upside, after teaching all those key thinkers, maybe we'll be hearing about those key thinkers in, in the podcast moving forward. Who knows? Yes, we will. <laughs> yes, we will. There's, there's many great ones. Many mm. great ones. So I guess finally, a quick note on our scheduling moving forward. Uh, we're aiming for fortnightly podcast um, Yeah, from now on, but... Obviously, <laughs> things could change and we'll, we'll try and keep you updated if that happens. All right, so let's get into the episode properly now. So here is the chapter summary, according to a wiki of ice and fire. While in his coma, Bran dreams of falling and of a crow teaching him to fly. Then he wakes to find himself crippled and decides to name his direwolf Summer. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I kind of went back and forth on to what to focus on for this particular episode. Um, because obviously we're starting to get some of the 
interesting aspects of um, disability representation. Um, not necessarily, I think, Martin's strongest examples of disability representation. There are some problems and we will get into them at many points as the podcast progresses and we will touch on it a little bit today. Uh, but the main focus of our episode today is actually going to be looking at the coma uh, and specifically literary functions of comas and how we can interpret them and, and think about what they're doing um, in literature. So for today's episode, I'm going to be primarily drawing upon some of the work from Matthew Kolbeck's PhD thesis, which is Waking is Rising and Dreaming is Sinking, the Struggle for Identity in Coma Literature. Uh, so a lot of Kolbeck's work is going to be kind of informing how I think about um, yeah, what comas do in narratives. So internal coma narratives commonly represent... Um, or they, they're generally represented as this kind of dreamlike state. Uh, so Kolbeck argues that, quote, coma fiction is instrumental in misinforming a collective audience of what the coma condition truly entails, thus failing to represent fully its traumatic weight. Through the conflation of coma and sleep slash dream states, audiences in turn equate these two differing states of consciousness with each other, a connection promoted through examples of inaccurate, overly aestheticized fiction. On a rudimentary level, much coma fiction fails to address the grades or levels of coma, adopting a one-size-fits-all approach, and therefore failing to recognise the subtle shifts in consciousness that take place, end quote. Um, and Kolbeck also points out that sleep-like comas rarely last more than two to four weeks before the patient enters a non-responsive state, and that comas rarely end suddenly as if someone is simply waking up, which is, of course, what Bran does in this chapter. And I think, it, you know, it is, if I think about all the other examples of comas that I've seen in popular culture, it, it kind of is like that. Um, if we get an insight into what that person is experiencing, which obviously isn't always the case. Um, but if we do, like in this chapter, it is very dreamlike. And at the end, it's a wake up. It's very sudden. Uh, if it's in a TV show or a book, it's often like to end the episode or end the chapter. Like, wow, what will happen next now that they've woken up? Um, so obviously from a, a perspective of representing reality, uh, we can say, okay, so this isn't realistic. Um, but we can think a little bit about what it's doing and the purpose behind it, um, because obviously Martin isn't necessarily trying to accurately represent the experience of a coma. Maybe he is. Maybe he thinks this is what comas are like because of pop culture representations, but maybe he's fully aware it's not and he's taking some creative license. So Brand's coma is very dreamlike. Uh, it holds symbolic meaning and literal meaning. So there are some things in there that we know are actually telling us Um about things to come and things that he needs to be cognizant of. So uh, we've got in terms of symbolic meaning, this idea of flying or dying, um, this is a symbolic choice at the moment, but it is actually indicating the future magical abilities that Brain is going to inherit at some point. Um, and I think it's also interesting if we think about how the coma is represented, there are also parallels to the representation of his magical abilities, like the way those magical abilities kind of manifest in the text. Um, uh, th it is very similar to what this is kind of like. There is a kind of eeriness, dreaminess to it. 
Yeah, I, I think this is a great choice for this particular episode because it really is our only chapter, perhaps, to discuss how comas kind of are represented in popular culture. Um, you know, it's the only time we spend in Bran's sort of coma headspace. Uh, I can't think of any other examples of characters who also go through this. We have a couple of fever dreams, um, as well as just dreams and prophetic dreams. But of course, as you kind of pointed out, um, there is a conflation between these two means of representing um, these kind of headspaces. Uh, it's kind of interesting how, for me, I always think about how the coma is used as a platform for an imaginative journey. And this takes me back to high school, which you know, imaginative journey really was the module for <laughs> senior school that we study. And I wrote a story where a character was in a car crash and went through <laughs> a coma and that was his imaginative journey. And it was well received. I got good marks, um, I think. I can't remember. Um, you know, and, and I can definitely see why creators use it in this way i mean it does give you a bit of that sort of creative license in terms of uh ambiguous metaphor versus literal meanings and we get a lot of that in brand's chapter in particular uh in fact i would say it exemplifies you know the use of that um but it does make me wonder how you know kind of kind of like our trope watches um episode about the csi effect how this means of representing uh a particular you know um impairment in this way or in in the csi effect forensic science really shapes how we kind of assume and understand this broadly um so i was kind of curious about what research out there exists on this particular topic you know so we we get a sense that bran is semi-conscious immediately he he has that sort of thought you know you always wake up before you hit the ground so that immediately kind of makes us doubt his assumptions about dream logic that this is a dream you know a, a mundane dream if we can have mundane dreams um and it does incline us to believe something else is going on so we i do agree that it's sort of like it's our first strong hint of the magical abilities that he will wield going forward i mean and of course we, we know something else is going on we know this is not just a dream because we know he is in a coma from the other po point of view chapters we've had around him so far um but also perhaps something else um more is going on even beyond so-called mundane coma headspaces if you can talk about that in that respect I, there is something definitely magical mystical at work here um it is effectively brand's first green dream as it's phrased in the story uh, he seems to be exhibiting some sort of abstract foresight i mean we have the unseen storm with catelyn and roderick uh, which is both a literal storm that they encounter as we find out in the next chapter off the coast of dragonstone but also it can absolutely be understood as a metaphor for the coming war of the five kings and the danger that cat and roderick are heading towards in king's landing um but it's never clear cut and then we we see things like Ned's grief uh, and anger with the king, Sansa's sorrow and Arya's isolation. Um, both we can definitely understand as literally what they are experiencing in that moment, concurrent with what period, time period Bran's having this coma, you know, sort of foresight in. Um, you know, this is where we left them off. Uh, but it also really does capture what each of these characters immediate futures are going to be as well so you can stretch it out in that way and be oh this is also prescience in that sense uh and of course bran cannot have any knowledge of these events and tra trajectories yeah you know even 
even the least metaphorical reading of these passages has to note that they all transpired while he was unconscious. He can't know that these things are happening. Um, so it's his first green dream. Uh, and the things I kind of liked about this chapter is the some of the things we still haven't really had answered in, in the series itself. I mean, we do get a sense that the weirwood is a living entity that you know, facilitates knowledge in some way, um, which is a nice hint to what the revelations are in A Dance of Dragons. Uh, and then we also have the Impaled Dreamers, which raises more questions than it answers, really. Um, in terms of, does this imply uh, that disability and the coma were necessary for Blood Raven's pursuit of a, an apprentice? Like, is he forcing these people into comas? Like, is that a necessary step? Is, and these people have not survived coming out of the coma? What's going on here? <laughs> but also it does highlight, you know, the fact that Brand's not the first person Blood Raven has approached about this kind of stuff. So that's all interesting. But at the same time, you know, again, coming back to what I was just saying about the CSI effect and stuff, like what does this sort of means of representing the coma do to our understandings of the coma? And it does it have, I guess, some negative impacts in that respect? Yeah, so thinking about that question of... Um what is necessary in order for someone to kind of go through this magical transformation and, and attain these abilities. Um, it makes sense to now talk about the super crypt trope because this is really the first kind of concrete um, beat of that that we're going to get in the series. So to recap briefly, um, the super crypt trope, it, it, it's used in a few different ways depending on the context. So um, primarily... Um, it refers to disabled characters or people, if we're talking literature characters. Um, and a, a big example, actually, not of characters, of people in real life, is Paralympians, is one example that you see this quite frequently, um, who essentially become elevated uh, to a heroic status by the non-disabled spectators who view... Um, the perceived overcoming or persevering in spite of their disability as this kind of inspirational and heroic act. So this can manifest in really mundane ways. So the romanticization, for example, of a disabled person doing something that a non-disabled person would receive no praise or attention for. Um, but when we get to fiction, there are some other ways that we can think about it. So in fiction, it might show itself through a character having exaggerated abilities, um, which essentially kind of becomes this way of providing balance, um, kind of symbolically or metaphorically, this is idea of the, the perceived lack of ability um, from this ableist perspective is balanced by these extra abilities or enhanced abilities. So one thing that we can think about is how common it is to see people who use wheelchairs who are geniuses in fiction. Mm. Uh, that's a very, very common trope. Um, we've got this idea of like one kind of balancing out the other. Uh, and then in one of the X-Men movies from memory, that's quite literally what happens. Um, he kind of has to make a very conscious decision about which is more important to him but generally speaking it's a bit more like metaphorical well professor x yeah yeah can't remember which x-men movie that was but in fantasy stories we can get a really kind of extreme version of this so we can have disabled characters who are literally given supernatural abilities um and this 
I think it is most stark when you see it when in um, abilities that kind of relate to the disability. So if we think about Daredevil, um, Daredevil's radar sense essentially negates his blindness. Uh, they're kind of two things that are related really, really strongly together. Um, and then in other cases, you also see the magical ability kind of being seen as this sort of fair trade. So when we eventually get to Cat of the Canals, we'll have a bit of a chat about that as well. So Brain's abilities in general will fit this trope uh, and we'll continue to track that as it goes on. Um, but flying in this particular coma dream is what stood out to me most. Um, so we will eventually, in A Dance of Dragons, get to the line, quote, you will never walk again, Bran, but you will fly. So this really kind of cements the thematic trade-off that's happening here. He loses his ability to walk, but he gains an ability to fly. So yeah, we'll continue to talk about this as we continue with the books, uh, but these really are the first hints of what are to come with Bran, so it is worth noting it here. And if we think a bit about Colbeck's criticism of the romanticised and overly aestheticised depiction of comas in fiction, the symbolism and highly stylized nature of um, this kind of hint of what's coming or promise of what's coming later in the books is worth thinking about at this point. Okay, so we've gone through a couple of ways that the, the coma dream is symbolic so far, but there is one other aspect of symbolism that I do want to talk about in this chapter. So if you refer, uh, return now to Colbeck's thesis, um, Colbeck draws on Edward Said's work on exile to frame the literary coma as an exile within a homeland where the coma patient physically remains in place uh, but is exiled through the otherness of the coma landscape. So the geographical landscape of the homeland then exists within the coma landscape of an outside world and much like in geographical exile, Bran enters the exilic state of the coma through a traumatic event. Um, now, I could keep going about this, but Scott, you're much better placed to talk a little bit more about this concept. So do you want to talk a bit about Edward Said and home and exile? Yeah, I mean, I'm always down to talk about all three of those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, my particular understanding and, I guess, experience with the research into exiled states primarily hinges upon like a more literal understanding of home so coming from fields like cultural geography and human geography um so you know for exiles especially involuntary uh exiles like refugees home might mean anything between a homeland and a place of residence or a, or a physical dwelling and of course this is particularly salient for someone like edward said as a palestinian because his exile was both you know exiled from a physical home as well as the homeland of Palestine. Um, and, you know, the research on exiles in in these fields kind of highlights how exiles and migrants as well, um, who are separated from their homeland or their original homes, they often attempt to, to recreate the lost or old home. Uh, now, J. Douglas Porteous and Sandra Smith, who are two professors of geography, I reference a lot because they're responsible for the term domicide. Um, the killing of home. Um, they mention in their their literature review how studies have focused on so-called colonial exiles, um, that is settler pioneers, uh, who are feeling homesickness and attempting to recreate familiar homes and landscapes, you know, transforming the land around them to reflect what was left behind. That's called colonialism, guys. <laughs> but this this compulsion to sort of replicate 
what was left behind is also often exhibited you know, within migrant communities, especially minorities, um, as well as obviously refugees. Um, so the new home, whether replicating the old home or not, is often experienced as familiar but different, perhaps even inauthentic by comparison. So it's, it's experienced as home, but not quite home. So it feels uncanny. Um, now, architectural historian and critical writer Anthony Vidler, um, in the Architectural Uncanny, Essays in the Modern Unhomely, uh, describes the uncanny as, quote, the fundamental propensity of the familiar to turn on its owners, suddenly defamiliarized, derealized, as if in a dream, uh, end quote. So, you know, in other words, as Vidler borrows from Sigmund Freud, one of the key thinkers I've been teaching about recently, um, <laughs> This highlights the transformation of the homely or the heimlich into the unhomely or the unheimlich. I don't know if I pronounced that right. It's German. I assume that's close. Uh, <laughs> so, so in other words, although not being without a house, you know, your physical structure um, that you live in, um, it is a condition of not feeling at home within it. Um, so I, I'm quite interested in how this has been transferred to the coma headspace as a result, because um, we can definitely see it kind of play out in Brand's chapter. And, and this is something I'm actually quite interested in, um, you know, in terms of my own ongoing research, because I'm actively pursuing, you know, research into these experiences following the loss of home um, through so-called natural disasters, and how the rebuilt home after a bushfire or a flood or whatever, um, even that which very closely replicates the physical dimensions of the lost home or the old home, might not quite feel like authentic home. Um, and to, to bring this all back to Bran, uh, we can perhaps see this apply to Bran as he perceives home, as in Winterfell uh, and the North, as he's uh, gradually going through his imaginative journey. Um, but we can also kind of see how this might map onto ex his experience of his disabled body. Um, much of what is witnessed uh, in this sort of sequence is quintessentially Bran, including you know the bird's eye view of Winterfell. That's how he expressed how he felt when he climbed Winterfell's physical walls. Like he, he had a bird's eye view of Winterfell, but this is stretched to the extreme and it's made strange so it feels uncanny in response um, as a consequence. Uh, and likewise, uh, what is perceived that ought to be familiar to him, his own body, he recognizes it as frail and much more frailer than he remembers. Or Rob in the yard, you know, practicing his swords, but now he's, he's practicing with live steel. That's new. That's different. That's strange. Um, so all, all these sort of signifiers of familiarity for him are being stretched and made strange and derealized in this way. So it's uncanny. So I can definitely see, um, you know, the intersection between uncanny and exiled state and what's being argued here by Colbeck in relation to coma narratives. Um, I did have a thought on how this um, might tie to our understanding of disability, as I kind of hinted at earlier, um, particularly permanent disability or impairment that happens after birth. So, you know, in other words, um, the to the previously able-bodied uh, in the sense. Um, would this be the f the first sense of Brand's disability as not being quite at home in his own body anymore? Or does this perpetuate you know, sort of problematic understandings of how disability 
is represented and disabled experience is represented that I'm not particularly attuned to or aware of. I mean, maybe both. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, it is entirely possible that there's something, uh, maybe not in so concrete terms as this concept of exile and homeland and all these kind of terms that we're using here. Um, but I can absolutely see Martin employing this uncanniness um, again to signal the the upcoming experience of feeling out of place or out of home in his own body. Now, in, in terms of, I guess, perpetuating problematic understandings of disability, I think potentially experience like if this was presented as a universal experience then yeah absolutely it would be problematic but also people do experience especially if we're thinking about the this specific instance where brain has gone through a trauma um and then his life is substantially changed afterwards like yeah it is going to be pretty challenging for him to work through that and come to um a I guess have a a new sense of identity and understand who he is as a person moving forward because he's both, as we've talked about in previous episodes, he'll both have um, his own internal identity that needs to shift and the kind of life he imagined for himself is going to be a bit different. But then there's also all the societal expectations as well that are going to uh, present a challenge. So I think, again, it's going to be one of these things where will need to be looking at Bran as one disabled character among many, and there are many in the series, and see if we do get examples of people who don't have that kind of disconnect and, um, again, that sense of not feeling home in the body. So if we get a a diversity of representation, then, yeah, it, it could be quite an interesting experience to explore, depending on how it's explored (laughs) yeah it's going to be interesting to look at brand's chapters going forward because i do remember that this also ties into his um relationship to winterfell itself and and the home itself like not only might he not feel at home within his body and again you know my memory of the story is not strong so i don't know if that's actually a strong aspect or not but also you know not feeling quite at home anymore in winterfell when he was you know the person who knew it best essentially um, so it's going to be interesting to see how Martin writes the way in which this character navigates this new lived experience for himself. Definitely see a lot of potential for Exile and Uncanny to come up again going forward. Yeah, I'm sure it is going to. Because, um, <laughs> you know, that's that's basically Brad's whole storyline, mm-hmm. let's be real. Um, <laughs> I think what's also going to be interesting with Bran is that in addition to these kind of um, identity questions that we've already brought up, Bran, more substantially than maybe any other character, is going to shift identity because he's literally kind of adopting this new persona as mm. the series goes on. Um, so I, I think what will be something for us to look at is how, like what instances are tying this shift in um, identity and persona to his journey as someone who is now a disabled person living in an ableist society um i mean as i said we have the you will not fly sorry you will not walk but you will fly line so that's a very explicit link um but yeah we'll we'll see if there are other instances of that as we go on and then the final thing that i wanted to highlight in this chapter which is probably a, a smaller point is um the selective memory loss 
Bren experiences. So Bren remembers in in the dream Jamie saying the things I do for love. Um, and we know in the future he's he's not going to remember that when he wakes up. And we literally get in this um, dreamscape, the crow saying, put that memory away. You don't need it now. Um, and it's unclear if this is Bren's own psyche that's doing this or if it's his mystical powers personified or if it's an external being that's kind of literally present in his dream and is communicating to him that he needs to forget this particular memory. And we can argue that. <laughs> Bran forgetting this particular event is a convenient plot device um, because, I mean, some events would not be able to play out the way they are if he woke up and he's like, oh, by the way, Jamie pushed me out the window. <laughs> like that would speed up the plot a bit. Um, but we can also see this as a, a way that um, Bran is essentially protecting himself from the trauma of the event that he's experienced. It could also be a sign that the kind of human politicking that is happening in Westeros all around him, outside him, um, and the violence that comes from that is now beneath him because he is essentially beginning a journey to this new mode of existence. So it could also be like the first instance of him essentially starting to understand that these kind of human matters, certainly in the minutiae of them, um, if the books go in the same direction as the show, maybe a big picture, it's going to be a bit different. But in these little um, disputes between humans um, in Westeros, it might be him kind of going, it's not really relevant to my life anymore. I'm I'm above it. I'm beyond it. I really like uh, that last point you made um, because it kind of ties into how this chapter uh, takes him to the heart of winter and he's afraid he can't even utter what he actually perceives there that's where his attention should be and the crow the free the three-eyed raven sorry uh, mentions yeah yeah that that's what you should be concerned about so i do like that reading because it highlights both a way in interpreting it that it's blood raven forcing the repression of that memory um, but it also ties thematically into that, you know, that tension between the political and the magical drama of this entire series. Uh, so, yeah, if Bran remembers that Jamie Lannister shoved him out a window, he probably doesn't head north and the world's fucked. So <laughs> uh, in that in that sense, I actually really like that detail. Um, yeah, so I do read it as as um, Blood Raven. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm using Bloodraven. I assume everyone knows who Bloodraven is. Everyone's read all the five books. I don't really need to explain it. There's a person behind all this. Um, um, and I do like it as a detail of kind of like trying to personify and represent the repression of memory in an interesting way. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's quite a conscious uh, act on Brand's part. You know, it's not, I mean, there's that way of understanding the word selective there. Um, selective in selective memory loss. Uh, I don't think it's particularly you know, brand choosing to, um, but uh, but it may also perhaps be influenced by magic. So in in the sense, I buy it despite its its convenience in terms of plotting and uh, everything. Um, but I also do like that alternate reading where you can be like it's unconscious protection. It you know if we if we leave aside what I just said about the magic and consider the memory itself for a moment. Um, it is traumatic, uh, not only in a physical sense, um, but it also, um, as we mentioned in the chapter when it happened, it's it profanes basically everything that Bran holds dear. You know, his I, you know, I, 
idealism around knighthood and his worship of heroes like Jamie Lannister himself, as well as his ability to climb and, how, and his passion for it, you know, it, that is all taken away from him in one moment. So in that respect, it is traumatic, um, well beyond just, um, I, I say just, it's still grievous uh, bodily harm, but it's also a psychological thing as well. Um, so yeah, it, you know, it's convenient for the plot. Uh, purpose uh obviously but you know i i i can whistle past it in that respect because i can i think there's several different very compelling ways to interpret it that tie into brand's character as well as the thematic points being made uh for the series so that's it for this chapter we'll be back soon for chapter 18 catlin 4 if you enjoyed this episode consider pledging to our patreon at patreon.com slash watchers pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs if you don't have cash to spare, you can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Or send us to a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. If you're a fan of The Clash of Critics, be sure to tune in to our flagship podcast, Trope Watchers, the podcast about pop culture and why it matters. Our website is tropewatchers.com slash A Clash of Critics. We are on social media at A Clash of Critics, and you can email us at A Clash of Critics at gmail.com. See you next time.